You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. Entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. The golden age of piracy was in the late 17th and early 18th century, particularly between the years 1716 and 1726. These are often considered the golden age of piracy in the Caribbean, and pirate ports experience rapid growth in the areas in and surrounding the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. Furthermore, during this time period, there was approximately 2,400 men that were currently active pirates. The military power of the Spanish Empire in the New World started to decline when King Philip IV of Spain was succeeded by King Charles II, who, in 1665, became the last Hamburg King of Spain at the age of four. While Spanish America in the late 17th century had little military protection, as Spain entered a phase of decline as a great power, it also suffered less from the Spanish crown's mercantilist policies with its economy. The lack of interference combined with the surge in output from the silver mines to increased availability of slave labor began a resurgence in the fortunes of Spanish America. England, France, and the Dutch Netherlands had all become New World colonial powerhouses in their own right by 1660. Worried by the Dutch Republic's intense commercial success since the signing of the Treaty of Westphalia, England launched a trade war with the Dutch. The English Parliament passed the first of its own Mercantilist Navigation Acts in 1651 and the Staple Act in 1663. That required that English colonial goods be carried only in English ships 
and legislated limits on trade between the English colonies and foreigners. These laws were aimed at ruining the Dutch merchants whose livelihoods depended on free trade. This trade war would lead to three outright Anglo-Dutch wars over the course of the next 25 years. Meanwhile, King Louis XIV of France had finally assumed his majority with the death of his regent mother, Queen Anne, of Austria's chief minister, Cardinal Mazarin, in 1661. The Sun King's aggressive foreign policy was aimed at expanding France's eastern border with the Holy Roman Empire and led to constant warfare against shifting alliances that included England, the Dutch Republic, the various German states, and Spain. In short, Europe was consumed in the final decades of the 17th century by nearly constant dynastic intrigue and warfare, an opportune time for pirates and privateers to engage in their bloody trade. In the Caribbean, this political environment led colonial governors to face new threats from every direction. The Dutch sugar island of St. Eustatius changed ownership 10 times between 1664 and 1674 as the English and the Dutch dueled for supremacy. Consumed with various wars in Europe, the mother countries provided fewer further military reinforcements to their colonies. So the colonial governors of the Caribbean increasingly made use of buccaneers as mercenaries and privateers to guard their colonies or carry the fight to the mother country's current enemy. Surprisingly, or not, these undisciplined and greedy dogs of war often proved difficult for their sponsors to control. By the late 17th century, the great Spanish towns of the Caribbean had begun to prosper, and Spain had also began to take a slow, fitful recovery, but remained poorly defended militarily because of Spain's problems and so were sometimes easy prey for pirates and privateers. The English presence continued to expand in the Caribbean as England itself was rising towards great power status in Europe. Captured from Spain in 1655, the island of Jamaica had been taken over by England and its chief settlement of Port Royal had become a new English buccaneer heaven in the midst of the Spanish Empire. Jamaica was slowly transformed along with St. Kitts into the heart of the English presence in the Caribbean. At the same time, the French Lesser Antilles colonies of Guadalupe and Martinique remained the centers of French power in the Caribbean, as well as amongst the richest French possessions because of their increasingly profitable sugar plantations. The French also maintained privateering strongholds around western Hispanola and their traditional pirate port of Tortuga and their Hispanola capital of Petit Gaiove. 
The French further expanded their settlements on the western half of Hispaniola and founded Ligon and Port de Pay. Even as sugar plantations became the primary industry for the French colonies of the Caribbean. At the start of the 18th century, Europe remained riven by warfare and constant diplomatic intrigue. France was still the prominent power, but now had to contend with a new rival, England, which emerged as a great power at sea and land during the War of the Spanish Succession. But the depredations of the private pirates and the buccaneers in Americas in the later half of the 17th century and of similar mercenaries in Germany during the Thirty Year War had taught the rulers and military leaders of Europe that those who fought for profit rather than for king and country could often ruin the local economy of the region they plundered. In this case, the entire Caribbean. At the same time, the constant warfare had led the great powers to develop larger standing armies and bigger navies to meet the demands of global colonial warfare. By 1700, the European states had enough troops and ships at their disposal to begin better protecting the important colonies in the West Indies and in the Americas without relying on the aid of privateers. This spelled the doom of privateering and the easy and nicely legal life it provided for the buccaneer. Though Spain remained a weak power for the rest of the colonial period, pirates in large numbers generally disappeared up to the year 1730, chased from the seas by a new British Royal Navy squadron based at Port Royal, Jamaica, and a smaller group of Spanish privateers sailing from the Spanish main known as the Costa Garda with regular military forces now on station in West Indies. Letters of Marquet were harder and harder to obtain. Economically in this late 17th century and early 18th century was a time of growing wealth and trade for all the nations who controlled territory in the Caribbean. Although some piracies would always remain until the 18th century, the path to wealth in the Caribbean in the future lay through peaceful trade, the growing of tobacco, rice, and sugar, and smuggling to avoid the British Navigations Acts and the Spanish Mercantilist Laws. By the 18th century, the Bahamas had become the new colonial frontier for the British. The port of Nassau became one of the last pirate havens. A small British colony that even sprung up in former Spanish territory at Belize in Honduras that had been founded by an English pirate in 1638. The French colonial empire in the Caribbean had not grown substantially by the start of the 18th century. The sugar islands of Guadalupe and Martinique remained the twin economic capitals of the French Lesser Antilles and were now equal in population and prosperity to the largest of the English Caribbean's colonies. Tortuga had begun to decline in importance, but Francis Hispanolan settlements were becoming major importers of African slaves as French sugar plantations spread across the western coast of that island, 
forming the nucleus of the modern nation of Haiti. The Pirate Code, or Pirate Articles, or Articles of Agreement, were a code of conduct for governing pirates. A group of sailors on turning pirate would draw up their own codes or articles, which provided rules for discipline, division of stolen goods, and compensation for injured pirates. Buccaneers began operating under a set of rules variously called the Chase Party or Charter Party, Custom of the Coast, or Jamaican Discipline. These eventually became known as Articles of Agreement, or the Pirate's Code. Pirate articles varied from one captain to another, and sometimes from even one voyage to another, but they were generally alike in including provisions for discipline, specifications for each crewmate's share of treasure, and compensation for the injured. Each crew member was asked to sign or make his mark on the articles, then swear an oath of allegiance or honor. The oath was sometimes taken on a Bible, but John Phillips' men, lacking a Bible, swore on an ax. Legend suggests that other pirates swore on cross pistols, swords, or a human skull, or even astride a cannon. This act formally inducted the signer into a private pirate crew, generally entitling him to vote for officers and on other affairs of the moment, to bear arms and to his share of the plunder. The articles having been signed, they were then posted in a prominent place, often on the door of the grand cabin. After a piratical cruise began, new recruits from captured ships would sometimes sign these articles, in some cases voluntarily, in other cases under the threat of torture or death. Valuable sea artisans such as carpenters and navigators were especially likely to be forced to sign articles under duress and would rarely be released regardless of their decision to sign or not. In some cases, even willing recruits would ask the pirates to pretend to force them to sign so they could plead that they were forced should they ever be captured by the law. Generally, men who had not signed the articles had a much better chance of acquittal at trial if captured by the law. Pirate articles are closely related to, and in some cases derived from, privateering articles, which similarly provided for discipline and regulated distribution of booty, usually though far less equal than with pirate articles. By the 19th century, ordinary merchant ships also had articles specifying wages and rules, which crewmen had to sign upon shipping aboard. Merchant articles and privateering articles can be traced back to Europe in the Middle Ages, when there was a system of joint hands agreement between merchants, owners, and seamen to share profits.
Many other pirates are known to have had articles. Few pirate articles have survived because pirates on the verge of capture or surrender usually burned the articles or threw them overboard to prevent the papers being used against them at trial. Here is the set of articles from Henry Morgan, the pirate. Item one, every man has a vote in affairs of moment, has equal title to the fresh provisions or strong liquors at any time seized, and may use them at pleasure unless a scarcity makes it necessary for the good of all to vote a retrenchment. Two, every man to be called fairly in turn by list on board of prizes because they were on these occasions allowed shifts of clothes. But if they defrauded the company to the value of dollar in plate, jewels, or money, marooning was the punishment. If the robbery was but only betwixt one another, they contended themselves with the slitting the ears and nose of him that was guilty and set him on shore, not in an uninhabited place, but somewhere where he was sure to encounter hardships. Article three, no person to game at cards or dice for money. Article four, the lights and candles to be put out at eight o'clock at night. If any of the crew after that hour still remained inclined for drinking, they were to do it on the open deck. Article five, to keep their peace, pistols, and cutlass clean and fit for service. Article six, no boy or woman to be allowed amongst them. If any man were to be found seducing any of the latter sex and carried her to sea disguised, he was to suffer death. Article seven, to desert the ship or their quarters in battle was punished with death or marooning. Article eight, no striking one another on board, but every man's quarrel to be ended on shore at sword and pistol. The quartermaster of the ship, when the parties will not come to any reconciliation, accompanies them on shore with the assistance he thinks proper and turns the dispute back to back, so many, many paces distance. At the word of command, they turn and fire immediately, or else the peace is knocked out of their hands. If both miss, they come to their cutlasses and then he is declared the victor who draws first blood. Article nine, no man to talk of breaking up the way of living till each has shared 1,000 pounds. If in order of the, to do this, any man should lose a limb or become a cripple in the service, he was to have $800 out of the public stock and for lesser hurts proportionately. Article 10, the captain and quartermaster were to receive two shares of the prize. The master, boatswain, and gunner, one share and a half, and the other officers, one and one quarter share. And the most important, Article 11, the musicians to have rest on the Sabbath day, 
but the other six days and nights, none without special favor. One of the most famous pirates you might have heard of is Blackbeard, known as Edward Teach. Born around 1680, died around November 22nd, 1718. Blackbeard was a notorious English pirate who operated around the West Indies and in the eastern coast of the American colonies. Although little is known about his early life, he was probably born in Bristol, England. He may have been a sailor on a privateer ship during Queen Anne's War before settling on the Bohemian island of New Providence, a base for Captain Benjamin Horngold, whose crew Blackbeard joined sometime around 1716. The pirate Captain Horngold placed him in command of a sloop he had captured and the two engaged in numerous acts of piracy. Their numbers were boosted by the addition to their fleet of two more ships, one of which was commanded by pirate Stead Bonnet. But towards the end of 1717, pirate Horngold retired from piracy, taking two vessels with him. Blackbeard captured a French merchant vessel renamed her Queen Anne's Revenge and equipped her with 40 guns. He became a renowned pirate. His cognomen derived from this thick black beard and fearsome appearance. He was reported to have tied lit fuses under his hat to frighten his enemies. He formed an alliance of pirates and blockaded the port of Charleston, South Carolina after successfully ransoming its inhabitants, he ran Queen Anne's Revenge aground on the sandbar near Beaufort, North Carolina. He parted company with Bonnet and settled in Bathtown, where he accepted a royal pardon. But he was soon back at sea, where he attracted the attention of Alexander Spotwood, the governor of Virginia. Spotswood arranged for a party of soldiers and sailors to try to capture the pirate, which they did on November 22, 1718. During a ferocious battle, Blackbeard and several of his crew were killed by a small force of sailors led by Lieutenant Robert Maynard. A shrewd and calculating leader, Blackbeard spurned the use of force relying instead on his fearsome image to elicit the response he desired from those he robbed. Contrary to the modern-day pictures of the traditional tyrannical pirate, he commanded his vessels with the permission of their crews, and there is no known account of his ever having harmed or murdered those he held captive. He was romanticized after his death and became the inspiration for the pirate-themed works of fiction across a range of genres. On November 28th, Blackbeard's two ships attacked a French merchant vessel off the coast of St. Vincent. They each fired a broadside across its bulwarks, killing several of its crew and forcing its captain to surrender. 
The ship was the La Concordia of St. Malo, a large French gunnyman carrying a cargo of slaves. Blackbeard and his crew sailed the vessel south along St. Vincent and the Grenadines to Biquia, where they disembarked her crew and cargo and converted the ship for their own use. The crew of the La Concorde were given a smaller of Blackbeard's two sloops, which they renamed Maves Recontarte, or Bad Meeting, and sailed for Martinique. Blackbeard may have recruited some of the slaves, but the remainder were left on the island and were later recaptured by the returning crew of Maves Recontorte. Blackbeard immediately renamed Lynn Concorde as Queen Anne's Revenge and equipped her with 40 guns. In late November, near St. Vincent, he attacked the Great Allen. After a lengthy engagement, he forced the large and well-armed merchant ship to surrender. He ordered her to move closer to the shore, disembarked her crew and emptied her cargo holds, and then burned and sank the vessel. The incident was chronicled in the Boston newsletter, which called Blackbeard the commander of a French ship of 32 guns, a brigantine of 10 guns, and a sloop of 12 guns. When or where Blackbeard collected the 10-gun brigantine is unknown, but by that time he may have been command of at least 150 men split between three vessels. On December 5, 1717, Blackbeard stopped the merchant sloop Margaret off the coast of Crab Island near Angola. Her captain, Henry Bostock, and crew remained Blackbeard's prisoners for about eight hours and were forced to watch as their sloop was ransacked. Bostock, who had, held the who had been held aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge, was returned unharmed to Margaret and he was allowed to leave with his crew. He returned to his base of operation on St. Christopher Island and reported the matter to Governor Walter Hamilton, who requested that he sign an affidavit about the encounter. Bostock's de deposition details Blackbeard's command of two vessels, a sloop and a large French gunnam, Dutch built with 36 cannons and a crew of 300 men. The captain believed that the larger ship carried valuable gold dust, silver plate, and a very fine cup, supposedly taken from the commander of the Great Allen. Blackbeard's crew had apparently informed Bostock that they had destroyed several other vessels and that they intended to sail to Hispanola and lie in wait for an expectant Spanish armada, supposedly laden with money to pay the garrisons. Bostock also claimed that Teach had questioned him about the movements of local ships, but also that he had seemed unsurprised when Bostock told him of an unexpected royal pardon from London for all pirates. Bostock's deposition described Blackbeard as a tall, spare man with very black beard in which he wore very long. It was the first recorded account of Blackbeard's appearance, 
and is the source of his nickname Blackbeard. Later descriptions mention that his thick black beard was braided into pigtails, sometimes tied with small colored ribbons. Johnson, in 1724, described him as such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful. Whether Johnson's description was entirely truthful or embellished is unclear, but it seems likely that Blackbeard understood the value of appearances. Better to strike fear into the heart of one's enemies than to rely on bluster alone. Blackbeard was tall with broad shoulders. He wore knee-length boots and dark clothing, topped with a wide hat and sometimes a long coat of brightly colored silk or velvet. Johnson also described Blackbeard in terms, in times of battle as wearing a sling over his shoulder with three brace of pistol hanging in holsters like bandoleras and stuck lighted matches under his hat, the, later, the latter apparently to emphasize the fearsome appearance he wished to present to his enemies. Despite his ferocious reputation, though, there are no verified accounts of his ever having murdered or harmed those he held captive. Blackbeard may have had other aliases. On November 30th, the Montserrat merchant encountered two ships and a sloop commanded by a Captain Kentish and Captain Edwards. Blackbeard's movements between late 1717 and early 1718 are not known. He and Bonnet were probably responsible for the attack off St. Estuas in December 1717. Henry Bostock claimed to have heard the pirates say they would head towards Spanish-controlled Samana Bay in Hispanola, but a cursory search revealed no pirate activity. Captain Hume of the HMS Scarborough reported on February 6th that a pirate ship of 36 guns and 250 men and a sloop of 10 guns and 100 men were said to be cruising amongst the Leeward Islands. Hume reinforced his crew with musket-armed soldiers and joined up with HMS Seaford to track the two ships to no avail, though they discerned that the two ships had sunk a French vessel off St. Christopher Island and reported also that they had last been seen gone down the north side of Hispanola, although no confirmation exists that these two ships were controlled by Blackbeard and Bonnet. But it's very likely that they were. In March 1718, while taking on water at Turnef Island east of Belize, both ships spotted a sloop from Jamaica, the Adventure, making for the harbor. She was stopped and her captain, David Herrett, invited to join the pirates. Herrett and his crew accepted the invitation and Blackbeard sent over a crew to run Adventure. They sailed for the Bay of Honduras where they added another ship and four sloops to their fortilla. On April 9th, Blackbeard's enlarged fleet of ships looted and burnt Protestant Caesar. His fleet then sailed to Grand Cayman where they captured a small turtler. Blackbeard probably sailed toward Havana, where he may have been captured, where he may have captured a small Spanish vessel that had left the Cuban port. 
They then sailed to the wrecks of the 1715 Spanish fleet off the west coast of Florida. There, Blackbeard disembarked the crew of the captured Spanish sloop before proceeding north to the port of Charleston, South Carolina, attacking three vessels along the way. By May 1718, Blackbeard had awarded himself the rank of Commodore and was at the height of his power. Late that month, his flotilla blockaded the port of Charleston in South Carolina. All vessels entering or leaving the port were stopped, and as the town had no guard ship, its pilot boat was the first to be captured. Over the next five or six days, about nine vessels were stopped and ransacked as they attempted to sail past Charleston Bar, where Blackbeard's fleet was anchored. One such ship, headed for London with a group of prominent Charleston citizens, which included Samuel Wragg, a member of the Council of the Province of Carolina, was the Crowley. Her passengers were questioned about the vessels still in port and then locked below deck for about half a day. Blackbird informed the prisoners that his fleet required medical supplies from the colonial government of South Carolina and that if none were forthcoming, all prisoners would be executed, their heads sent to the governor and all captured ships burnt. Rag agreed to Blackbeard's demands and Mr. Marks and two pirates were given two days to collect the drugs. Blackbeard moved his fleet and the captured ships to within about five or six leagues from land. Three days later, a messenger sent by Marks returned to the fleet. Marks's boat had capsized and delay in their arrival in Charleston. Blackbeard granted a reprieve of two days, but still the party did not return. He then called a meeting of his fellow sailors and moved eight ships onto the harbor, causing panic within the town. When Marks finally returned to the fleet, he explained what happened. On his arrival, he presented the pirates' demands to the governor, and the drugs had been quickly gathered. But the two pirates sent to escort him had proved difficult to find. They had been busy drinking with friends and were finally discovered drunk. Blackbeard kept his side of the bargain and released the captured ships and his prisoners, albeit relieved of their valuables, including fine clothing some of them, some of them had worn. Whilst in Char Charleston, Blackbeard learned that Woods Rogers had left England with several men of war with orders to purge the West Indies of pirates. Blackbeard's flotilla sailed northward along the Atlantic coast into Topsail Inlet, off the coast of North Carolina. There they intended to careen their ships into the scrape their hulls, but the Queen Anne's revenge ran aground on a sandbar, cracking her main mast and severely damaging many of her timbers. Blackbeard ordered several sloops to throw ropes across the flagship in an attempt to free her. A sloop commanded by Israel Hands of Adventure also ran aground, and both vessels appeared to be damaged beyond repair, leaving only revenge and the captured Spanish sloop. 
Blackbeard at some stage learned of the offer of a royal pardon and, and probably confined it in Bonnet, his willingness to accept it. The pardon was open to all pirates who surrendered honor before September 5th, 1718, but contained a caveat stipulating that immunity was offered only against crimes committed before January 5th. Although in theory this left Bonnet and Blackbeard at risk of being hanged for their actions at Charleston Bar, most authorities would waive such conditions. Blackbeard thought that Governor Charles Eden was a man he could trust, but to make sure he waited to see what would happen to another captain. Bonnet left immediately on a small sailing boat for Bathtown, where he surrendered to Governor Eden and received his pardon. He then traveled back to Beaufort Inlet to collect the revenge and the remainder of his crew intending to sail to St. Thomas Island to receive a commission. Unfortunately for him, Blackbeard had stripped the vessel of its valuables and provisions and had marooned its crew. Bonnet, in rage, set out for revenge, but was unable to find him, and he and his crew returned to piracy and were captured on September 27, 1718, at the mouth of Cape Fear River. All but four were tried and hanged in Charleston. It is surmised that Blackbeard and Hands intentionally ran the ship aground to reduce the fleet's crew compartment, increasing the share of the spoils. During the trial of Bonnet's crew, revenge boatswain Ignatius Pels testified that the ship was run ashore and lost, and that, that Blackbeard caused it to be done. It is considered plausible that Blackbeard let Bonnet in on his plan to accept a pardon from Governor Eden. He suggested that Bonnet do the same, and as the war between the quadruple alliances of 1718 and Spain was threatening, to consider taking a privateer's commission from England. Lee suggests that Blackbeard offer, also offer Bonnet the return of his ship revenge. There's another similar idea explaining that Blackbeard began to see Queen Anne's revenge as something of a liability. While the pirate fleet was anchored, news of this was sent to neighboring towns and colonies, and any vessel nearby would delay sailing. It was prudent, therefore, that Blackbeard no longer wanted to linger, although wrecking the ship was somewhat an extreme measure. However, before sailing northward on his remaining sloop to Okarat Inlet, Blackbeard marooned about 25 of his men on a small sandy island about a league from the mainland. He may have done this to stifle any protest they made if they guessed their captain's plans. Bonnet rescued them two days later. Blackbeard continued on to Bath where in June 1718, only days after Bonnet had deported with his pardon, he and his much-reduced crew received their pardon from Governor Eden. As he settled in Bath on the eastern side of Bath Creek at Plum Point near Eden's home, during July and August he traveled between his base in the town and his sloop off Oraco. Some accounts state that he married the daughter of a local plantation owner 
although there is no supporting evidence for this. Eden gave Blackbeard permission to sail to St. Thomas to seek a commission as a privateer, a useful way of removing bored and troublesome pirates from a small settlement, and Blackbeard was given unofficial title to his remaining sloop, which he renamed Adventure. By the end of August, he returned to piracy, and in the same month, the governor of Pennsylvania issued a warrant for his arrest. But by then, Blackbeard was probably operating in Delaware Bay, some distance away. He took two French ships leaving the Caribbean, moved one crew across the other, and sailed the remaining ship back to Oracoke. In September, he told Eden that he had found the French ship at sea, deserted. A vice admiralty court was quickly convened, presided over by Tobias Knight and the collector of customs. The ship was judged as a derelict found at sea and its cargo of 20 hogsheads of sugar were awarded to Knight and 60 to Eden. Blackbeard and his crew were given what remained in the vessel's hold. Ocracoke Inlet was Blackbeard's favorite anchorage. It was perfect vantage point from which to view ships traveling between the various settlements of Northeast Carolina. And it was from there that Blackbeard first spotted the approaching ship of Charles Vane, another English pirate. Several months earlier, Vane had rejected the pardon brought by Woods Rogers and escaped the men of war English captain brought to him with him to Nassau. He had also been pursued by Blackbeard's old commander, Benjamin Hornigold, who was by then a pirate hunter. Blackbeard and Vane spent several nights on the southern tip of Oracoke Island, accompanied by such notorious figures as Israel Hands, Robert Deal, and Calico Jack. The Last Battle Lieutenant Robert Maynard of the HMS Pearl was given the command of two commandeering sloops to fight with Blackbeard and capture him dead or alive. Maynard found the pirates anchored on the inlet side of Anchor Oak Island on the evening of November 21st. He had ascertained their position from ships he had stopped along his journey, but unfamiliar with the local channels and shoals, he decided to wait until the following morning to make his attack. He stopped all traffic from entering the inlet, preventing any warning of his presence, and posted a lookout on both sloops to ensure that Blackbeard could not escape to sea. On the other side of the island, Blackbeard was busy entertaining guests and had not set a lookout. With Israel hands ashore in Bath, with about 24 of adventure's sailors, he had also much reduced crew. Johnson, in his diary of 1724, reported that the pirate had no more than 25 men on board and that he gave out to all the vessels that he spoke with that he had 40. At daybreak, preceded by a small boat taking soundings, Maynard's two sloops entered the channel. The small craft was quickly spotted by adventure and fired at as soon as it was within range of their guns. Meanwhile, the boat made a quick retreat to the Jane. T Blackbeard cut the adventure's anchor cable. His crew hoisted the sails and adventure maneuvered to the point, her starboard guns toward Maynard's sloops, 
which were slowly closing the gap. Hyde removed Ranger to the port side of Jane, and the Union flag was unfurled on each ship. Adventure then turned toward the beach of Oracoke Island, heading for a narrow channel. What happened next is uncertain. Johnson claimed that there was an exchange of small fire, small arm fire following the adventure, ran aground on a sandbar, while Maynard anchored and then lightened his ship to pass over the obstacle. Another version claimed that Jane and Ranger ran aground, although Maynard made no mention of this in his log. What is certain, though, is that Adventure turned her guns on the two ships and fired. The broadside was devastating. In an instant, Maynard had lost much as a third of his forces. About 20 on the Jane were either wounded or killed, and nine on the Ranger. Hyde was dead and his second and third officers either dead or seriously injured. His sloop was so badly damaged that it played no further role in the attack. Again, contemporary accounts of what happened next are confused, but small arms fire from Jane may have cut Adventure's jib sheet, causing her to lose control and run into the sandbar. In the aftermath of Blackbeard's overwhelming attack, Jane and Ranger may have also been grounded. The battle thenceforth would have been a race to see who could float their ship first. The lieutenant had kept many of his men below deck in anticipation of being boarded, told them to prepare for closing fight. Blackbeard watched as the gap between the vessels closed and ordered his men to be ready. The two vessels contacted one another as the adventurer's grappling hook hit their target and several grenades made from powder and shot-filled bottles and ignited by fuses broke across the sloop's deck. As the smoke cleared, Blackbeard led his men aboard, buoyant at the sight of Maynard's apparently empty ship, his men firing at a small group formed by the lieutenant and his men at the stern. The rest of Maynard's men then burst from the hold, shouting and firing. The plan to surprise Blackbeard and his crew worked. The pirates were apparently taken aback at the assault. Blackbeard rallied his men and the two groups fought across the deck, which was already slick with blood from those killed or injured by Blackbeard's broadside. Maynard and Blackbeard fired their flintlocks at each other and then threw them away. Blackbeard drew his cutlass and managed to break Maynard's sword. Against superior training and slight advantage in numbers, the pirates were pushed back towards the bow, allowing the Jane crew to surround Maynard and Blackbeard, who was then completely isolated. As Maynard drew back to fire once again, Blackbeard moved in to attack him, but was slashed across the neck by one of Maynard's men. Badly wounded, he was then attacked and killed by several more of Maynard's crew. The remaining pirates quickly surrendered. Those left on the adventure were captured by the ranger's crew, including one who planned to set fire to the powder room and blow up the ship. Varying accounts exist of the paddle's list of casualties. Maynard reported that eight of his men and 12 pirates were killed. Brand reported that 10 pirates and 11 of Maynard's men were killed. Spotswood claimed 10 pirates and 10 of the King's men were dead. 
Maynard examined Blackbeard's body, noting that it had been shot no fewer than five times and cut about 20. He also found several items of correspondence, including a letter to the pirate from Tobias Knight. Blackbeard's corpse was thrown into the inlet while his head was suspended from the bowsprit of the Maynard sloop, so the reward could be collected. Your journey is now ending. the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.